The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about child sexual abuse. And, you know, we've we've heard recently in the news about all of the scandals of the child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and how those priests were claiming privacy, that their right of privacy, they did not want all of the information about the sexual abuse to be out there in the public. So this is kind of a strange reverse on privacy, like the children's privacy should trump over the, uh, you know, the, the priest's privacy. And Dearly, we don't want to have child sexual abuse. That is the the lowest of the low. So we've got a wonderful expert with us today. Troy Simmons is a licensed professional counselor and licensed offender treatment provider in private practice in Amarillo, Texas. He teaches seminars on child abuse across the United States, and he provides expert testimony in child sexual abuse cases. He's treated hundreds of both survivors and perpetrators of sexual abuse. So he has this unique insight into the issue of preventing and responding appropriately to this terrible, silent epidemic, child sexual abuse. So I have this book right in front of me. It's, uh, it, it, it's really kind of touching because you see this child, you don't see the face, but you just see this child sitting on the bed, and it, the name of the book is Mommy, Please Read This, The Facts About Child Abuse by Troy D. Simmons, and it's it's pretty um, compelling to read this. And so this is really telling about the facts about child abuse. And this is receiving, this book is receiving generous praise for its heartwarming exposure on the heartbreaking abuse uh, subject of sexual abuse. And you can find out more about Troy, the work he does in his book at Troy Timmons, that's T-R-O-Y-T-I-M-M-O-N-S dot com. Troy, thank you so much for joining us from Texas. Oh, thanks for having me, Maury. So how is it that you came to write this book? Uh, yeah, the Mommy Please Read This actually uh, came, I was working with um, with a little girl and her family that had had uh, you know had the experience of of sexual abuse, I'd given the mom a, a really great resource of a, a, a rather large book on sexual abuse, and asked her to to start reading it. And she came back a couple of weeks later, and she made this comment to me. She said, "You know, it's just too heavy. It's too it's too research oriented. It's it's just you know too many numbers and facts." And 
and it's just too much. Too and overwhelming for her, yeah. It was overwhelming, and that was where the idea came from with Mommy, Please Read This, was to you know, really try to put together the critical information in a very approachable, easy-to-read format. And, and that's so important because when you find out that your child has been the victim of sexual abuse and you're in shock with that, it's really hard to digest something that's really complicated, too. So this is really wonderful that someone can read this and get the gist of what, what's really going on here. So how frequent, I'm talking about numbers, how frequent does child sexual abuse occur in the United States? You know, in the U.S., um, the, the studies that you'll, you'll see concerning frequency are about one out of four, some studies would put it at one out of three oh. girls in the United States before age 18 and one out of six boys. Hmm. Um, those numbers are, are staggering if you think about it. And, um, you know, whether it's a quarter of our, our daughters and granddaughters or a third, uh, the, the num- numbers are just overwhelming. Oh, my goodness. So so who is most likely to be the victim of sexual abuse? You know, when you look at the the, the demographic information on, on who victims are, there are a few things that stand out. Uh, one is around the age of nine to nine and a half, both boys and girls, that's where we see a peak. Uh, if you think back to the bell curve, and uh, that would be, you know, the, the peak of, of that right there. We know that um, girls... Uh, that are, and boys as well, that are a little more reserved, shy, are in a perhaps a, uh, uh, a home that is separated by, by divorce, so they're living in two different households. Um, we know that um, those children uh, tend to show up certainly more in, in the victim studies. So nine years old, why do you think it's at that age that that's the peak? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not really... Sure, personally, I, th- I think from interviewing offenders, um, you know, that 9, 10, 11 um, age range is, uh, you know, where a child is, is, is starting to, to certainly have an awareness and curiosity. And, and uh, for some reason, um, offenders, particularly true fixated pedophiles, um, you know, find that, that age group just before puberty as, um, as being very uh, interesting and arousing to them. Ugh. How are how are the survivors impacted? You you work with survivors, and now do you usually work with them many years later when they when they kind of have this memory that comes back, or do you work with them when they're actually children? Well, I do both. Um, you know, in a in the acute care situation where a child was recently abused, and perhaps that case is going through the court system, then I, I would have the opportunity to work with a, a child in that situation. Um, and then it very often, um, probably most counselors and therapists and psychologists across the nation are working with um, any, anywhere from young adults to, to um, you know, older adults that have dealt with, you know, this issue. I can tell you some of the things that seem to stand out for me as a therapist um, you know, most of the survivors that I've worked with uh, are dealing with issues of trust. Um, you know, obviously having um, complications in relationships uh, because they just find it hard to uh, to to really really trust and invest in someone because of that experience. Mm. Another 
issue that we commonly see uh, is the, the survivor feeling responsible for the abuse. Uh, so we'll hear things like, I should have said something sooner, or I should have said no, or I could have done something differently. But just feeling, you know, um, overwhelmed with responsibility and guilt, mm-hmm. and, um, and then, of course, shame. I would think especially when we think about um, all of the children, you know, that were abused by the priests that we hear about. Um, there were just recently in our newspaper uh, for some of the victims in Orange County, California, from from their priests and their bishops and their Franciscan brothers, and um, they some of the, the survivors were saying that they felt you know, these were priests that they thought that they had to do this, you know, that they felt compelled like this was the right thing to do, that the priest told them that this was the right thing for them to do. And and at the time, they didn't even think about saying no, you know? Right, yeah, and, and so it really sets that person up for for conflict later on. Um, and, and what a, you know, what a tragic situation that is because you've got, you know, not just a person in authority, but a person of moral authority that is taking advantage of that situation. So it creates, uh, you know, tremendous conflict and, and pain for, you know, for that survivor. Uh, that, interestingly, is, is, you know, whether in the, in the church uh, or, you know, the priest, the scene that you're describing, or the cases that unfold in communities across, across our country, uh, you know, it really most typically is, uh, a person that has a relationship with the child knows, cares about the child, um, um, really has good rapport with the child and the, and the child's caregivers. And so, what you're describing there really is pretty normal. Yeah, and then you know, recently um, there was a, a woman who was, um, I think she was, well, she was a, a gold medalist, and she has brought out into the the publicity about how many of these kids who were gymnasts and swimmers that they were abused by their coaches and pretty much if they were to ever say anything, they were already threatened. So you've got one is the moral side and the other is the threat side. Have you uh, heard much about that or treated anybody who's, who's been threatened by their coach or anyone else don't say anything? Yeah, it was, um, you know, to give you an idea of, of, of what we normally see, uh, and hear from from survivors. Uh, we it, it helps us to look closer at who the offenders are. Um, you know, eighty percent of of these types of cases occur through a process called grooming, and um, that's where the offender really tries to establish a relationship and rapport and trust with the child. And then the the research estimates are probably about ten percent in, involve actual use of force, and then another 10% threats of force. And so what we know about offenders and how they interact with their victims is, for the most part, they, um, they, they really don't have to use force because they've worked so hard at grooming the child and getting them into a position. Uh, but to answer your question, I have met um, and worked with, with both offenders and, and abuse survivors who have talked about um, certainly being threatened. And mm. sometimes it's a veiled threat, you know, you don't want to say anything about this because um, you'll get in trouble too, for example. Um, it's very common. Mm-hmm. We also know that when 
when you look at who the offenders are across the U.S., 90%, 90%, 9 out of 10 uh, of the offenders, you know, know and have a relationship with, with the victim prior to the abuse. And so where we would see force and threats of force being more prevalent would be in that smaller number of cases that involve strangers. My goodness. So, so in terms of the child molesters, you know, um, you've treated them. Is there, is there a pattern of, of this, of a certain kind of thought or their own childhood that causes this kind of aberration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. You know, on the, on the, that's, that's the big one right there. You know, everybody is, is asking the question, why do people do this, basically? And there are, um, th- there's one myth that I think we always have to dispel. You know, the myth is that people do this, offenders molest because they were molested. And the research just simply doesn't uh, bear that out. Uh, recent estimates put it at about 35%, which is still high but much different than the idea of people do this because it happened to them. And, mm. and, and in fact, the reality is most people that, um, you know, had this, this experience, um, you know, go out of their way to help and to protect as opposed to, um, you know, hurting children. Um, but we do know that there, there are some offenders that their own abuse experience, you know, really dramatically affected them. Um, we know that um, in our society today that teenagers, adolescent boys particularly, um, uh, we've just seen an explosion in, in the cases that involve adolescent boys. And um, I think that, that that has something to do with, uh, you know, the fact that their judgment is still soft. There's a reason we don't let them drive and, and buy alcohol um, and their, so their judgment is, is impaired in some ways and soft, and their sexual interest just naturally is high. And so that combination, uh, in, in the work that we've done with juvenile offenders, we've learned that that combination paired with um, their access to pornography and then access to a child uh, can create just that, that situation where these types of cases can occur. What about the, the cases in which... Um, teenage boys, you know, are taking care of their little sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. Do you see anything like that? Because I know a lot of people do that. They can't afford babysitters, so the older kids take care of the little kids. Is there a, a worry about that? You know, there, there is. And uh, I speak to, you know, lots of different organizations, and uh, a trend that we've seen in the last couple of years, uh, at least here in the area of Texas that I live in, um, for example, smaller to medium-sized churches uh, were, in some cases, allowing the the youth or the adolescents to help out with the you know the very young, so that all of the adults could make the service. And um, I think I think what we've learned is that we have to be very careful putting young people in charge of uh, you know unsupervised care of 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 children. Mm. And, and, and it goes back to those reasons I stated earlier. They, you know, a teenage boy normally naturally has, uh, the interest, sexual interest. That's, that's part of, you know, our development. But I think, uh, you know, I can tell you, I've met several young people over the last few years who I think really just got in over their head. Um, and, and, um, 
you know, find themselves with opportunity to see see this young person or to explore in a way that's that's inappropriate. Hmm. What about babies that are sexually molested? What kind of a, a, a head would do that? You know, what, what goes on in their heads? I mean, you treat these people. What what would that be about? Well, you know, the, the majority of, of the offenders that I've treated over the years have been uh, men, first of all, and that tip, that's, that's fairly typical across the U.S. There are female offenders. We, we don't know as much about them because they're reported even less than uh, their male counter, counterparts. Um, we, we know that only about 15% of these types of cases are ever reported. The reality is most people never tell. Um, and then when you break out who the offenders are even more closely, then studies will separate them out. You know, the, the largest group would be neighbors, friends of the family, so a person that, you know, you might invite to babysit your children. Mm. Um, and the second group are stepfathers, and the third would be um, uncles. And so those top three categories, um, you know, if we think about that, are all of, all of whom we would probably consider as a, as a potential caregiver of our child. And um, that's what makes it so hard. Because uh, the reality is the people that we know, love, care, and trust are, in fact, the ones who um, uh, pose, pose a risk to our children. Oh, my goodness. So in terms of ages, you talked about nine is the peak. And then, you know, we've heard about, you know, in, in Orange County, I've heard of babies that were taken to the, you know, the, the, um, the Orangewood Home for Abused Children that were like babies that were sexually molested. So... What is it? I mean, what is? Do you have certain percentage? Like nine is the 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 peak, and then, you know, um, how, is it very common for babies to be molested too? Yeah, the, you know, nine is is what we would refer to as that median age, so sort of that midpoint or an average. Um, my experience, and 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 also just reviewing studies on on the, who victims are, the very young are. Um, are not as as represented, and that's thank God. You thank know? God, yeah, because they are the most vulnerable. They are certainly the most vulnerable. The cases that I've been involved with, where very young children, um, you know, were being abused, uh, involved adolescent boys, mm. and uh, the, you know that's something else we know about that particular population of offender is their their judgment. Um, you know, it, it really is soft, and they're they're more likely to go through with. Um, you know some some very very inappropriate acts. Mm. So what what have what do we learn from these molesters about what parents who are listening or brothers and sisters are listening about how do we protect these kids? Two things really stand out for me out of all you know I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of admitted child molesters. So these are people who say I did this. And so in writing Mommy, Please Read This, I went into uh, part of it asking this question uh, of these guys, you know, what exactly is it that you're looking for, and how do you do this? What's the key? And two things just, just stood out in all the interviews. One, they, they described seeking out, looking for a child that in their, their view, their perception, is less assertive. Mm. They're they're looking for the child who they believe will will keep this secret. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and they're looking for a child that, um, for for whatever reason, seems to be hungry for attention. Uh-huh. Hungry for attention. And so offender after offender told me things like, I listen to a child. I spend time with a child. I want to be the person that that child can tell anything. Mm. I build rapport and trust with the child. And and really what they're describing is grooming. Yes. Setting that child up. And the goal, of course, is keep the secret. Mm. So so in terms of, of when you talk to these people and you're counseling them, are they... Um, they must do they have a lot of guilt i mean what are they thinking what what's going on in their mind when they come to you are they are they coming to you because they have to come to you are they you know are they filled filled with guilt are they thinking they're doing the right thing for the child what are their inner thoughts well it's a, it's certainly a mixed bag on on how they you know feel and and present when they when they come in for the most part and and certainly in our program and, and pro- probably in most communities, uh, offenders are ordered into a counseling program. Right. As I, think it's, I think most would agree it's fairly rare that someone uh, on their own without being, you know, um, uh, ordered into, into treatment, uh, that they would seek that out. Um, a lot come in um, in denial, saying, I didn't do this. Um, then, for the most part, are able to fairly quickly come to a point where they say, "Okay, this is what happened." And then, um, you know, we we have lots of competing emotions. Uh, we see offenders that are are stuck with uh, blaming the system, or blaming the child, or blaming the mm-hmm. family system. Um, and then it, it really is a process um, of you know, working through all of the competing emotions and and dealing with, um, you know, how can I go forward and not hurt children? That's the goal. That should be always the goal, community safety. Do they think that they're hurting children? You know, the the whole concept of, of thinking errors, the way that a person thinks and what we're telling ourselves, uh, that's that's huge. And with the offender population, they are saying to themselves again and again and again uh, things like, well, I'm not really hurting this child because I care about the child. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so they're, they're rationalizing it or justifying it or minimizing it or sometimes just outright denying it. But there has to be that process of, of distorted thinking that's going on in the offender's head. So... Given that people are listening in to this, and a lot of people, you know, they have to have babysitters. And most families, they both mom and dad work, right. and they have to have babysitters or au pairs or whatever you call it. What What are some of the things that you can do? I mean, do you, do you put up baby cams, you know, nanny cams all over so that they can see video of what's going on? I mean, what are some things that people really can do to try and protect their children? Well, I think... That you know, first when we go back and look at who the offenders are, we know that they're predominantly male. We know that um, they are people that we tend to have a relationship with—neighbors, um, stepfathers, uncles, um, family members, friends, and family—account for ninety percent of these cases. Um, I, I think that one idea is is limiting the the one-on-one interaction between 
um, you know, an adult and a child. Mm. Um, for, so, for example, in an organization, if, um, if the organization adopted a policy that said, basically, you know, as we interact with children, we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that it's not one adult, one child, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that there's just a, a accountability. Now, back to the babysitter issue, uh, boy, that see, that's the tough one. Because yeah, because you're going to get somebody that you trust, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. That's, that's who you're going to trust more than somebody that you don't know. Right, right. But, but I think our listeners also need to understand that the majority of these cases um, develop over the course of, you know, considerable time where that process of grooming is, is unfolding, where it's taking place. And so, you know, for the babysitter, uh, honestly, I don't see a lot of cases that involve a babysitter. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of cases that involve, uh, you know, a close friend of the family. Right. But what if a close friend of the family is the babysitter? Well, I think two things. <laughs> One, the idea is, um, uh, you know, who is the babysitter? Uh, I, would, I would say, look, if, if your close friend, neighbor who's a male, uh, is offering to babysit your children, um, be careful. Yeah. Be yeah. careful. Yeah, yeah. And I know that uh, there's, I, I, we have to be so careful there because you don't want to indict all the well-intended good people out there. Right. Um, there's so many great volunteers and, and healthy, happy people that just, you know, they, they mean absolutely no harm. But on this issue when we're looking at who poses the risk to our child, mm-hmm. then I think we have to get back to some basics. The majority of these offenders are male. Yes. And, um, and they're people that we are, are fairly close to. Yes. So I think that when we're deciding who spends unsupervised time with my child, then we really need to take a close look. And I guess the things we're going to look for, we're going to look for that kind of grooming and we're going to look at our child and say, is our child one that, that is rather shy, is rather um, not assertive, is, you know, all the things that you talk about, you know, that they, they kind of are looking for attention. So if your child's looking for attention, and are those the things that you might want to be looking for? Absolutely. You know, the offenders again and again and again said things like, I listen to the child, I spend time with the child. And they would say, I'm looking for the child who, um, you know, maybe has the, the parents, you know, their, their time is spread really thin. And so this child is maybe hungry for that attention. And that was a constant theme in interviewing the offenders, time and attention, time and attention. I remember one offender who said uh, to me, parents need to understand, if you won't listen, I will. Oh, my God. Can you yeah. just, we, we don't have a lot of time, can you just give maybe two or three things that a parent should say to their children to protect them so that, you know, to talk with their kids about it? Yeah, you know, I think one first, assertiveness. You know, we've got to be modeling and teaching assertiveness, helping children understand that it's perfectly okay to say no. Um, I think that we need to uh, really undo the stranger danger ideas in some ways, um, help children understand that whether I know you or not, whether I like you or not, um, it's not your job to touch me or see me there. 
Yes. Um, and I really like that idea, the model of it's not your job. Uh, because kids, you know, very early on we start asking children, what do you want to be when you grow up? So they have a concept of, of jobs uh, early on. And, and so the idea is whose job is it to see or touch your private? Nobody, but Boy. yeah. Yeah, you can count that on one, you know, hand. Moms, dads, the appropriate caregivers and medical yep. professionals. That's it. So whether you're, I'm your counselor or your favorite coach or your best friend's uncle, you know, that's not your job. And so I'm encouraging parents to consider having having that conversation with children as Very well. good. Well, we are out of time, so I just want to thank you for writing Mommy Please Read This by Troy Timmons and we will just send them to your website at troytimmons.com. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the Renat. I'm Mari Frank, host for Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.